Lecture 17, Henry II, The Expansion of Empire. Welcome back. I left you in suspense in our last lecture because Thomas Beckett and Henry II had just patched up their quarrel and Beckett was headed home to England at last after six years of exile. What happened next? Well, we're going to find out in this lecture, I promise, and we're going to see that Beckett's fate is tied to the subject that we're going to spend the rest of the lecture on, the expansion of English rule under Henry II and the very complicated intertwining of the personal and the political throughout his reign, but especially in the second half of the reign when Henry's sons grew up. So we are going to get to Beckett later in the lecture, but first I'm going to back up to a point even before he became king so we can understand how Henry ended up ruling so much territory, so much land, that some historians call it the Angevin Empire. Well, Henry acquired his lands in three main ways, by inheritance, by marriage, and by conquest. Now, from his mother, Empress Matilda, he had inherited his claim to Normandy and, of course, to England. And Normandy was solidly controlled by the Angevins by the time Henry was a young teenager, thanks to the work of his father, Geoffrey of Anjou, Geoffrey, you'll remember, had preferred to concentrate on Normandy. He never bothered to get interested in England. England, of course, young Henry had had to fight for, though he ultimately got it due to this compromise we talked about last time with King Stephen. So that's Henry's maternal inheritance. This is the original territory controlled by William the Conqueror, Henry's great-grandfather, and then by Henry's grandfather, Henry I. But Henry also has a paternal inheritance from his father, Geoffrey of Anjou. Geoffrey died suddenly in 1151 at the age of 39. And from Geoffrey, Henry inherits the county of Anjou along with the counties of Maine and the Touraine. And taken together, the lands Henry inherits from his mother and father in France, they constitute an enormous contiguous lordship that dominates northwestern France. But that's not all. In 1152, Henry accomplishes a masterstroke that makes him ruler of almost all of the western seaboard of France. He marries Eleanor of Aquitaine, the newly divorced ex-queen of France. And I promise I will give you the juicy details later in the lecture. But for right now, I just want to point out that by this marriage, Henry acquires rights over Aquitaine and Poitou, and that's essentially all of southwestern France. And finally, to complete the western seaboard, later on, Henry marries his third son, Geoffrey, to the heiress of the county of Brittany. So, by inheritance and by marriage, Henry rules basically half of France as well as the Kingdom of England. Henry also acquires land by conquest. And here I'm talking about the famous Norman conquest of Ireland, though the term doesn't really make sense anymore. You don't really want to call these people Normans. They rule over so many different territories. 
Now, the story of the conquest of Ireland is very complicated, but one essential point to grasp, I think, is that it's never all that important to Henry, certainly not in comparison to any of his other lands. But here, in a nutshell, is what happened. Ireland in the 1160s is divided among many, many warring kings. None of them really controls the whole island. One of these kings, Dermot of Leinster, is driven into exile. He loses out in a faction fight. There are two more powerful rulers. He's backing the loser. So he's already in contact with lords in England and Wales when this happens, and he decides he's going to try to get English help to put himself back on the throne. So Dermot tracks down King Henry II. At this point, Henry is in Aquitaine, and Dermot comes to ask for support. But Henry puts him off. He has his hands full. But the king does give Dermot permission to go see if any of Henry's other lords might be willing to help out on a private basis. Now, Dermot tries a lot of lords in vain. There's not a whole lot of interest in this venture, uh, but finally he has success in Wales. Wales is full of restless, enterprising noblemen referred to as marcher lords. Since the days of William the Conqueror, Anglo-Norman lords had been pushing into Wales, establishing lordships at the expense of the native Welsh, and the areas that they control are on the border between English and Welsh territory. A border is referred to in this period as a march, so marcher lords are border lords. There were also Scottish marches on the borders between England and Scotland. Now, the marcher lords are a fairly tough lot, and they have to be because their position in Wales is always rather precarious. The Welsh fought back, of course, and sometimes uh, these marcher lords would lose out uh, to the Welsh. They would actually lose their new lordships. So for them, it, it might be a good idea to have other outlets for their energies. Maybe Ireland might be a promising avenue to explore. One lord in particular, a guy named Richard Fitzgilbert de Clare, is happy to take up Dermot's offer. And we'll call him Strongbow, because that's the nickname that he got later on. The terms were very attractive. Dermot promises Strongbow that in return for helping Dermot get back on the throne, Strongbow will have the right to marry Dermot's daughter, Aoife, and he will inherit the kingdom of Leinster when Dermot dies. And so you see a series of invasions of Ireland starting in 1167, and gradually these uh, invasions restored Dermot's position there until in 1171 he and Strongbow have managed to make Dermot more powerful in Ireland than he had ever been before. At that point, Henry II gets involved at last. He hadn't necessarily expected that Dermot's plea for help would be answered so successfully, and he wasn't at all sure that he's going to be able to keep a lid on the Welsh marcher lords once they've established a secure power base in Ireland. It's a little bit far off the beaten track, and maybe they will be a little bit more independent than the King of England is comfortable with. These marcher lords could be rather fickle in their loyalties, and they're used to a lot of freedom of maneuver, much more freedom than lords in the other parts of Henry's dominions. The English kings had had to give them a certain amount of headroom so that they could survive in the very difficult conditions on the Welsh border. So Henry doesn't trust these lords. He doesn't trust Strongbow. 
And so he comes to Ireland in person in 1171 to make sure that from now on, everybody knows that the king is ultimately in charge there. He's coming in at the last minute. Sure, he hasn't really done any of the work, but he's rebranding the invasion of Ireland. He's turning it from a private venture into a royal venture. And thus, the lordship of Ireland is created. And we see the beginning of the very long, very contentious history of England's connection to Ireland. Now, the result of all of this, inheriting and, and marrying and conquering, is that Henry is in charge of an astonishing conglomeration of territories. Think about trying to control all of this land under the conditions of the 12th century. Henry has Ireland, he has England, he has half of France under his control, at least in theory. But in reality, the degree of royal control in each of these areas varies a lot. Many historians like to talk about an Angevin empire, but there isn't a real sense in which this is an empire like the Roman Empire. There isn't an integrated administration at all. These are territories with their own traditions, their own institutions of government, or not in the case of Ireland. There's hardly any government in Ireland. They have their own peoples, they have their own languages, they have their own customs. And really, the only thing that unites them is the accident that they're ruled by this one man, Henry II. So let's talk a little bit about these divisions. And we'll start with Ireland, we'll move across England, and then into France. Ireland is never completely conquered in the Middle Ages. The English certainly establish a secure foothold there, but their authority never extends over the whole country. There are areas in the south and the east that are quite anglicized. These are places where you have a lot of settlers come in. They establish new towns, and it all looks rather English. But there are also parts of the north and the west where hardly any English settlers go. The Irish kings and chieftains are still ruling pretty much the way they'd always done. In between these areas, there are marches, just as there are in Wales. And these are places where the Irish and the English have to work out ways of getting along with each other, though there's uh, frequent conflict. So Ireland's not an area that is securely held by Henry II or by any other medieval English king. Ireland is always a problem. Now, in this context, we don't really need to talk much about England. We know from our last lecture what Henry's administration in England is like in this period. He's uh, getting an increasingly firm grip on law and order in England, and it's a relatively well-governed territory, certainly. But what about France? Here, I think the most important point to make is that Henry's French lands are almost as different from one another as France is from England, and in one respect, probably more so. France is broadly divided into two main cultural and linguistic zones. The zone in the north is called the Long Doyle, and the zone in the south is called the Long Duck. And these two names come from the two different words for yes in the two regions. In the south, for yes, you said ok, and in the north, you said oil which over time became the modern French oui. And the northern term ends up winning out because of the way politics develop in France. The north ends up dominating the south. Now, both oc and oil, they both come from a similar Latin derivation, but it's just that the two different regions of France chose a different part of the Latin word that they took it from. 
Um, and these words for yes are by no means the only points of difference between the two languages. They really are separate languages. They're actually not all that mutually intelligible. So you actually are speaking a different language in the South than you are in the North. In addition, Northerners and Southerners tend to have different legal systems. It, for example, take inheritance. The northern lands are more likely to practice primogeniture. That is, they reserve the main inheritance for the oldest son. Certainly, there's more of an emphasis in the north on passing down larger parcels of land. In the south, people tend to divide up their holdings more among different brothers. And the result is that in the north, you see larger, more compact lordships. In the south, there are lots of little lordships and Things are, as a result, just a lot more chaotic overall. On the legal front, there's also a big difference. Normandy and England use customary law. As we've seen, the common law is being developed in England, and there's an emphasis slowly emerging on precedent and case law. And this is true in Normandy also. In southern France, they're actually still using the old Roman law, and this had never completely died out after the fall of the Roman Empire. So the legal systems of the two main regions of France that were ruled by Henry II are incompatible. So overall then, not a lot of basis for unity. You don't have culture going for you, you don't have language, you don't have law. And predictably, these areas are fiercely independent. We've seen in the past that the Normans hate the Angevins. This is why uh, the barons in England and Normandy don't want uh, Matilda to marry Geoffrey of Anjou in the first place. And things actually get worse after Geoffrey of Anjou uses rather brutal methods to conquer Normandy. The Normans really hate the Angevins after that. And both Normans and Angevins hate the people of Poitou, the Poitevins. One constant theme in English history from now on down through the 14th century is that everybody hated the Poitevins. They were just seen as treacherous schemers who were always getting in the way. And then there's Aquitaine. Aquitaine was a real headache to govern. Every little lordship in Aquitaine was fiercely independent. It was resistant to the authority even of their own dukes. So what on earth is Henry II's plan for trying to govern this huge mess. Well, as we've seen, he's a man with a lot of self-confidence, and his plan is basically that he personally is gonna keep a lid on all of these territories as long as he's alive, and then he's gonna divide them up among his sons when he dies. His sons will get manageable chunks of territory that are gonna be more logical units to govern. He has a large family to provide for. He and his wife, Eleanor, have four sons and three daughters who live to adulthood. Uh, but Henry seems to have a lot of land in order to take care of this. So what exactly is his master plan? First, the daughters. They're not going to get any land. They're going to be married off to important royal figures. One goes to Germany, one goes to Spain, one goes to Sicily. It's the sons who are going to inherit. And so you have these four young men, Henry, Richard, Geoffrey, and John, and they dominate Henry II's planning. And they end up making him absolutely miserable. But before we get to the misery, let's look at how Henry II thought it was going to turn out. His first son, Henry, is the oldest, 
and by this point it's customary for the oldest son to get the lands that belong to his father by inheritance. So in the case of Henry II, that would be England, Normandy, and Anjou. Henry II's second son, Richard, is going to get his mother's lands in Poitou and Aquitaine. Uh, now we have to take care of the third son, Geoffrey, and Henry II is going to take care of him by marrying him off to the heiress of Brittany. He's going to rule in Brittany, and that'll be a pretty decent holding for a third son. Now, when Henry II first devises this scheme uh, for providing for all his sons, the youngest son, John, hadn't been born yet. So when he came along, there was nothing left over, and people mockingly referred to him as John Lackland because he didn't have any land set aside for him, at least at first. And incidentally, John Lackland is at least a better nickname than the one he got later on, John Softsword. But King Henry found a solution to the problem. When Ireland came under English control, King Henry made John Lord of Ireland. Problem solved. Now, this seems like a pretty reasonable plan, and it might have worked if it weren't for the fact that the Angevin royal family was one of the most dysfunctional families in all of English royal history. And they have competition on this point, but still I think they absolutely take the cake. And it really starts with the very volatile relationship between Henry II and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Now, so far, I've put off describing Eleanor, but now it's time, finally, to fulfill my promise of explaining why Eleanor is such a formidable figure that only Catherine Hepburn can possibly do her justice on the screen. Eleanor had quite a history before she became Queen of England. In the 1130s, she was the most eligible heiress in France. She's the granddaughter of the famous Duke William IX of Aquitaine. He was a troubadour poet in his own right and a renowned bon vivant. Eleanor had been married in an early age to Louis VII of France, just before Louis inherited the throne from his father, Louis the Fat. Now, Louis VII was his father's opposite in many ways. He was not fat. Instead, he was quite ascetic. And some people thought that Louis was more suited to the cloister than the battlefield. And Eleanor and Louis were clearly unsuited to each other. Eleanor loved music and poetry and parties. Louis didn't. There were other things Eleanor apparently liked more than Louis did. And it's largely in an effort to keep an eye on her that Louis brings Eleanor with him on the Second Crusade. And her behavior on Crusade caused something of a scandal. Um, there were rather public displays of affection between Eleanor and her uncle, Raymond of Antioch, and people gossiped quite a bit about that. Uh, Louis hustled Eleanor back home, uh, and a few years later, they were divorced. Now, the ostensible grounds for the divorce were consanguinity. And that means the spouses were too closely related for the marriage to be legal in the eyes of the church. And this was a relatively common pretext for divorce in the 12th century. Officially, you were not allowed to marry somebody related to you within seven degrees of kinship. And that means you're not allowed to marry your sixth cousin. 
But almost all of the noble and royal families of Europe at this point were closely related to each other. It could be very hard to find somebody who you wanted to marry because they were rich enough and important enough, but who wasn't related to you too closely at the same time. In practice, many marriages went ahead, even if they were technically incestuous. And this could leave a convenient escape clause for later. And that's what happened with Louis and Eleanor. The real practical reason for the divorce was the fact that Eleanor had produced two daughters, but no sons. And King Louis wanted an heir. Now, uh, we know from what I've said already earlier in the lecture that Eleanor has no trouble producing sons later with her second husband, Henry II. But I think that it's pretty clear to all concerned at the royal court of France that there aren't going to be any more offspring from Louis and Eleanor. Uh, because the spouses just can't stand each other, and they cannot bear to do their dynastic duty. And so in this situation, divorce is the best option. And this is the case even though it means that Louis is going to lose control of Eleanor's vast inheritance, which shows you how bad things were. But Louis does not see Eleanor's next move coming, clearly or he would never have risked the divorce before having some suitable second husband for Eleanor lined up. That's probably what he was planning to do, eventually marry her off to somebody else. Because Eleanor turned around immediately after the divorce and married Henry of Anjou, the future Henry II. And really, there's no better way of getting back at Louis than that. Because the Angevins and the King of France are, of course, bitter rivals. The French kings don't like the fact that the English kings have these huge landholdings in France. And also, technically, the English kings owe homage to the French kings for their French lands, and they don't like that. In practice, they don't have to listen to the French kings very much, but it definitely rankles with them that technically they are their overlords. So now, here comes Henry of Anjou. He swoops in, he gets Aquitaine and Poitou, Two years later, he's king of England as well. And this is a very bitter pill for Louis of France to swallow. But let's turn our attentions away from poor King Louis to the royal couple themselves. And these are two fascinating, ambitious individuals. At the time of the marriage, Eleanor is over a decade older than Henry. She's an experienced woman. She's been queen of France for 15 years. And I think the two of them were united in their ambition for power. And for about the first 15 years of their marriage, things seemed to have worked fairly well. They produced eight children, seven of whom survived, which is a very good rate for the 12th century. And it's especially impressive when we consider that Eleanor is about 30 when they get married, and still she has eight more children. In these early years, Henry clearly relied on Eleanor. On several occasions, she served as regent in one area of his dominions while he campaigned in another. But things seem to have gone wrong shortly after the birth of their last child, John, in 1167. After that point, Eleanor is permanently replaced in the king's affections by a series of mistresses. Now, this is not a period when there's any realistic expectation that kings are going to be absolutely faithful in marriage. But I think what Eleanor minds is that she's being ignored. She isn't used to it, and she seems to have taken her revenge by fostering plots among her sons 
so as to get back at their father. But I want to leave Eleanor on one side for a moment, beginning her schemes to return to the subject that we started the lecture with, namely, how does all of this dynastic politics relate to the controversy between Henry II and Thomas Becket? Now, most of the very thorny issues between Henry and Becket, all of this constitutional and jurisdictional stuff, most of that had been straightened out by early in 1170. But then another controversy arose, and this time it had to do directly with Henry's dynastic plans. Henry wanted his oldest son, called Henry, to be crowned King of England, even while he himself was still alive. And this would be kind of an insurance policy that he will succeed peacefully when the time came, because he'll already be king, of course. Now, remember, the successions of all of the other English kings since the Norman Conquest have been rather dicey. Think about Henry I having to sprint to Winchester to get the royal treasury, or Stephen having to hurry across the channel to do the same thing. Henry II wants his son to have an easier path to the throne. And in order to get his son crowned, he needs the Archbishop of Canterbury. Remember all the back and forth about who's going to consecrate various kings? You really want the Archbishop of Canterbury to do it, if you can possibly pull that off, because that's going to look the best. But if you can't settle your disputes with the Archbishop of Canterbury in time, there's another Archbishop in England, the Archbishop of York. You can get him to do it. So on June 14, 1170, Prince Henry is crowned in Westminster Abbey by the Archbishop of York. And after that, he's usually referred to as Henry the Young King, because he's already a king. Now, when Becket finds out about the coronation, he's devastated. This is a blow at one of Canterbury's most cherished prerogatives, the right to consecrate the king. But he swallows hard, and he makes up the quarrel between himself and the king. I don't think they quite understood what each other was saying when they, when they settled the quarrel. Becket thought that the king is giving him permission to punish the bishops who were involved in the coronation. Henry did not think he was doing that. At any rate, it seemed like peace. But in the meantime, letters arrived from the pope imposing sentence on the bishops who had been involved in the consecration. Becket forwarded the letters to England and crossed the channel himself, and clearly his intent was to follow up personally. He was going to go after those bishops. And this was the final straw. When Henry learned that Becket was going to go after the men who had consecrated his son, King of England, he snapped. He was in Normandy when he got the news, and he is reported to have burst out in anger with a very famous leading question. He asked, Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Now, four knights in his entourage heard this and said to themselves, in effect, Well, we will. And off they went, across Normandy, over the Channel, to Canterbury, to create a martyr. Now, they probably didn't go with the intention of murdering Becket. But when he resisted their attempts to coerce him, they cut him down right in his cathedral. And overnight, Becket went from first-class troublemaker to saint. Now, King Henry tried in vain to argue that he hadn't ordered the knights to kill Becket. Well, they, they misunderstood me. Everybody basically accepted 
that he was ultimately responsible for the deed. Now, in a strange way, Becket's murder is tied up in the king's dynastic plans, not just because it was partly caused by this controversy over the young Henry's coronation, but for another reason as well. Henry II is all of a sudden, in the very bad graces of the Pope, he wants to get out of town, and he wants to seem as if he's doing something that the Pope will approve of in the process. And it's just at this moment that the Irish expedition crops up. Popes had been calling for an invasion of Ireland for a while. Their hope was that the English would be able to impose some sort of discipline on the Irish church, which was famously very undisciplined. And here's a chance for Henry to win brownie points with the Pope and rein in those troublesome marcher lords, as we talked about. So... The invasion of Ireland in 1171 was directly tied to Becket's murder. But after Henry II returned from Ireland, he still had to do public penance at Becket's tomb. Now, from the time of Becket's murder in 1170, pretty much until the end of his reign, Henry had very little peace. And it's important to keep this in mind when we remember all of the great administrative and legal accomplishments that we talked about in the last lecture. Those are all going on while Henry deals with blow after blow delivered by his own family, and at the back of them is his bitter wife, Eleanor. And the chief cause of all of these troubles is the dynamic that we've seen before, where you have adult royal children, usually sons, Empress Matilda is the one exception here, you have adult royal children, and they want more authority than the king wishes to concede during his lifetime. And that happens in spades with the family of Henry II. He has four sons. They know what's coming to them, but they want it now, not later. And to make matters worse, the French kings very cheerfully use these family squabbles in the English royal family to their own advantage. The French kings would ally with whichever Angevin son or sons uh, happened to be rebelling against their father at any one time. This would be a way of scoring points against Henry II. Now, the marriage of Henry II and Eleanor, that had been the worst nightmare for the French monarchy. But the sons that the marriage produced might provide the means of undoing some of the damage. Now, the Angevins are led into rebellion, of course, by the oldest of the sons, Henry, the young king. He is married to Princess Margaret of France, who's actually the daughter of King Louis by his second wife, the one he married after the divorce from Eleanor. So Henry, the young king, is the son-in-law of King Louis of France. So Louis helped Henry and his brothers, Richard and Geoffrey, rebel against Henry II in 1173. And ironically, of course, Louis's ex-wife, Eleanor, is also helping out behind the scenes. And this is a serious revolt. It lasts into the following year. And with some difficulty, Henry II finally does suppress the revolt. He forgives his sons, but not his wife. He puts Eleanor into prison, and she stays in prison for the rest of his reign, another 15 years. And I think it's a measure of how formidable Eleanor is that Henry insists on keeping her locked up. But the relationship between Henry and his sons is never easy, and to make matters worse, the brothers don't get along with each other either. Richard II's son is his mother's favorite. 
He'd been given a certain measure of autonomy in her lands in Aquitaine. So he has much more scope for independent action than his older brother, Henry. Henry is more or less waiting around until Henry II will finally die. Henry and Richard quarrel repeatedly until the young king himself dies early in 1183. Geoffrey also dies in 1186, uh, leaving a young son named Arthur. More about him in a future lecture. But for now, that leaves only two sons alive, Richard and John. In 1189, Richard rebels against his father, again with the help of the French king. By this point, the king is Philip II, son of Louis VII by his third wife. Now, this may not have wounded Henry II too much. Richard was Eleanor's favorite son, not Henry's. But young John, the last born, John was Henry's favorite. And in the summer of 1189, John joins his brother Richard in revolt. And this breaks King Henry's heart. He's defeated by his sons and their ally, the French king. And shortly after this defeat, he is taken ill and dies. And on his deathbed, he's supposed to have whispered, shame, shame on a conquered king. So what's the result of all that dynastic planning? It proves moot. Henry ends up with only two sons to survive him. And as we'll see, Richard has no heirs. So it all goes to John in the end. All of the tensions, all of the difficulties involved in ruling all these very different, very far-flung territories are thus perpetuated into the next generation. Henry had managed to keep all these lands together. We'll see that Richard did too. But what about John? We're going to certainly answer that question. But before we do, we're going to take a pause in the sequence of our narrative to look in some detail at what the Angevins were doing when they weren't scheming against each other. What sort of culture is associated with the Angevin royal family? That's what we'll cover in our next lecture.